Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assaults is taking place next week at Utah State University, Monday and Tuesday. Today, we're going to preview the conference and talk about some of the important issues. Our guests will include Felicia Gallegos, Outreach and Prevention Officer with USU Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office, or SAVI, Misty Hewitt, Chief Program Officer, and Jeremy Torgerson, Residential Services Director, both with CAPSA, which is a nonprofit domestic violence, sexual abuse, and rape recovery center in Logan. We're glad you're with us today. Let me start with Felicia Gallegos. Uh, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for joining us again. Um, so tell us a bit about SAVI. What do you do there? Yeah, so SAVI stands for, as you said, the Sexual Assaults and Anti-Violence Information Office. We're located on the USU Logan campus, um, but we serve individuals who experience any form of violence um, within the uh, USU system. So whether they experienced before being part of USU or here or experienced while they were here, we provide both confidential advocacy and therapy. Um, we're also key to helping prevent sexual violence and domestic violence before it happens. We're good. Uh, Misty Hewitt, uh, tell us a bit about CAPSA. What What is it and uh, what do you do there? Great, thanks. Um, so CAPSA is an organization here in Cache Valley that serves Cache Valley and Rich County. CAPSA stands for Citizens Against Physical and Sexual Abuse. A lot of people ask what that is, but really what we pride ourselves on is providing hope and healing to survivors in our community who have experienced sexual assault, domestic violence, or human trafficking. Um, CAPSA has been in the community for over 46 years as experts on these topics. And um, really, our organization was founded in 1976, ironically, after a series of rapes that occurred on USU's campus. And we originally started as the Cache Valley Rape Crisis Center, and we've just, gen- we've just grown to meet the needs of the community to include domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking. And um, we've just been a long-standing community partner and really consider ourselves USU alumni because we started with um, working alongside the university to help survivors. We're good. Well, thanks to all of you for what you do. Jeremy Torgerson, what do you do at uh, CAPSA? So I'm the residential services director there. And so we've got a lot of different services, as, as you probably recognize. Abuse can have so many different impacts on the survivors. And because of that, we want to provide wraparound services and provide for all the different various needs that survivors might have. A couple of those is emergency shelter services. We operate a 34-bed emergency homeless shelter for people who are trying to escape abuse. And so obviously one of the big impacts or big reasons why people don't leave abusive situations is they have nowhere to go because the abusers have isolated them from any support system they have. So that's I'm over that part of it as well as our transitional housing program. And that's kind of a step down um, or maybe a better a step up towards independence for survivors of abuse. So they leave their abusive situation, they come to our shelter, and then to transition out into the community and start renting on their own and be independent, we help them with a two, generally like a two-year program where we help them with lower rent, we help them develop skills to work more effectively with landlords and things like that while they're in that program so that they'll be prepared to live independently. 
So I know Felicia Gallegos and uh, Misty Hewitt, you're, I think, both involved in organizing this conference. Uh, maybe we can start with Misty. Um, what uh, Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, what are you hoping to, um, to accomplish with the conference Monday and Tuesday on the OSU campus? Yeah, great. Well, we are really hoping to show and highlight the collaboration between the university and CAPSA. Um, we're really hoping to empower leaders in our community to understand more about domestic violence and sexual assault on campus and off campus. We're really hoping to highlight the need to improve trauma-informed services among all professionals and just really better understand some of the myths associated with these challenging dynamics and and really just enhance our coordinated community response. Um, we're really working together to try to um, identify gaps in services within our community and then bridge that information so that we can work collaboratively together on this issue. Um, so uh, um, I asked before we went on the air, Felicia Gallegos, uh, tell me again the best, best website to go to to or the best way to point people to the conference? Yeah, the best way to register for the conference or to find out more information is to visit usu.edu slash DVSA conference. And that's DV as in domestic violence, SA as in sexual assault conference. Okay, usu.edu slash DVSA conference. Okay, very good. We'll we'll, uh, say that uh, various times throughout the hour. Um, And everyone's welcome, are they? Yeah, everyone is welcome. Um, We are especially looking for leaders in the community who want to learn more or want to network. Looking at the registration list just yesterday, we have numerous individuals from various different places. We've got law enforcement, we've got legislators, campus administration, community providers. The list is very broad, and I'm really excited to see us all come together and have these really important conversations about preventing and responding to DV and SA. I want to go on around the panel. I'll start with Mr. Hewitt. Um, interested about where we are with with uh, you know domestic violence, sexual assault. Um, you know, it, it maybe give us some numbers if you want. But I, I I'll phrase it this way, Mr. Hewitt. What what don't people know? What do you, what do you think are some misconceptions that people have? Sure. Well, as you may know, domestic violence and sexual violence are one of the most underreported crimes. And for this reason, it's really important that we have attention devoted to understanding the dynamics related to domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, It really requires trusted collaboration in the community between partners to be able to accomplish the needs that survivors have. Um, One in three women and one in seven men will likely experience some form of domestic violence in their lifetime here in the state of Utah. And those numbers are staggering, one in three women and one in seven men. So I think it's really important that we recognize um, that it's important to fully understand that it's happening, that unfortunately it happens in our community, it happens in any community, and it's important for people to be informed and understand um, the realities associated with this type of abuse and then become more informed to know what steps to take to either receive help yourself or to help somebody receive services and support from their community. So, Mr. Hewitt, you, you said underreported. Uh, why? Why underreported? Yeah. Well, think about um, if you're experiencing domestic violence or sexual assault, you know, would you want to go tell people about it? The answer is no. There's a lot of shame 
um, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of barriers to reach out. And um, I think if if the average person were to put themselves in a situation of abuse, there's uh, more reasons why you wouldn't want to tell somebody than you would. And uh, a lot of times survivors in this situation um, have been navigating challenges for some time and um, they learn various coping skills, which um, I know Jeremy can speak to some of that as we talk today about, you know, why individuals do what they do or why they might take time or hesitate to leave a situation that seems so obviously abusive. Um, there's a lot more barriers there than we'd like to think. And so I think uh, one thing to do in the community is to just pause and put yourself in that situation and ask yourself, how easy would it be to leave if I'm leaving my home? If I'm leaving somebody that I've been with and relied on for years and years, that person may never see their children again. Um, what if I move and I lose my employment? Uh, what if my church situation changes or my neighbors and friends change because I have to leave the situation? Um, there's a lot of challenges associated with um, just leaving. It's not quite that simple. And then considering the economy and the housing market today, um, as Jeremy mentioned, housing is a huge issue related to why somebody might stay in a situation. Um, Homelessness is, is a challenge, and um, affordable housing is a challenge, and that's one of the reasons that we really prioritized housing at CAPSA and the services that we provide, because we know that that's a huge barrier for survivors. Um, being able to leave a domestic violence situation is, where am I going to live? Where am I going to provide shelter for my family and um, have a place to go home and have a sense of sanctuary? Before I move on to our other two panelists here with the same question, I want to pause and maybe somebody's listening in a situation that maybe they never thought they'd be in. Maybe they're in domestic violence or experienced sexual assault. Um, I guess anybody can can handle this question. What uh, what should they do? What's yeah. what's the what's the best thing to do? Well, the best thing to do, I would say, is to reach out and ask for help. We have a confidential hotline at CAPSA. Our number is 435-753-2500, and our number is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That number is, as I said, confidential, and we have trained advocates on the other line who can help you decide what your next steps are, whether it's just gathering information about domestic violence or sexual assault, or whether it's um, looking for resources. Um, our advocates connect people within the community, including um, the university and office, the Savvy Office, if they are um, interested in getting connected with services on campus. Our goal is to really connect survivors to the resources that are gonna help them with whatever it is that they're navigating. The dynamics are diverse, and so it does take um, trained professionals to direct them in the right direction, but anyone can call our hotline and gather information. You can be a survivor or just somebody who knows somebody that might be in an unsafe situation, and we can provide education and information to help you take your next steps. I was just gonna ask about that. So if you're someone, a friend, who suspects there's something going on, you could call the hotline as well. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, good. Uh, Jeremy Torgerson, uh, uh, I want to direct the same question to you. What what don't people know? What What's a misconception out there that you would like to correct? Yeah, so I was thinking about a couple of them. I, one of them is that emotional abuse counts as well. I think a lot of times when we think about abuse, we think just of the physical violence that can sometimes happen. 
But a lot of times, some of the more hurtful wounds that people experience are the emotional abuse that they go through. I also think another misconception is that um, the only abusers are men. And a lot of times, men can also be the survivors as well. And we're seeing a, a big uptrend at CAPSA lately of, of men coming in and reporting that they've survived, they're survivors of abuse. And so I think it's awesome that men are becoming more comfortable with the idea that they can be abused as well. They can be survivors and that they can reach out for support. I could imagine to be especially, you know, culturally as a man, maybe you're, you know, you're, you're not supposed to reach out for help, right? Yeah, for sure. And like, how could you be abused? I mean, you're the stronger one in this Mm -hmm. situation, aren't you? Or, um, they, and then it kind of it, it pulls on your self-esteem and things like that. And Misty was talking about some of those barriers for reporting, and that's a, that's a big one for males, is if I do report this or if I do talk to other people, they're going to question my masculinity or my identity as a person. But you do have increasing numbers of men we do. reaching out? Yeah, yeah, and a lot of that has been uh, targeted ad campaigns type of things as well as... Um, when we're talking to people on our prevention side or just raising awareness in the community and helping people recognize, you know, we do have people coming to us for support that identify as male or um, on any array or any part of the gender identity. Uh, let me turn to uh, Felicia Gago. Same question to you. What's, what, is there a misconception or two that you'd like to to uh, deal with? Yes. I mean, there are more than two misconceptions, and that's (laughs) why this is my full-time job. But I think one of the ones that has been super prevalent as I've been doing this work is violence is just more common than we want to realize. Um, And there's huge barriers to being able to recognize when you are in a situation involving abuse because the narrative we've been given oftentimes about what domestic violence looks like or sexual assault or even stalking, what these behaviors look like has been formed for us by movies and television shows. And um, in most cases, movies and TV shows are showing the most dramatic forms of these of abuse. Um, there's a lot of behaviors, a lot of power and control dynamics that are happening before it even gets to maybe physical abuse. Um, and so it's really important that we take a step back and recognize the broad range of behaviors that can occur within abusive situations because especially for those that are outside of an abusive relationship or a friend or a family member, it's really important that we can recognize these behaviors and help approach our friends and family members when we have concern. Um, And with that, it's really important how we approach survivors, right? Oftentimes, because we don't want to believe that abuse is as common as it is, we often tend to doubt them or not believe them, say that they're not telling the truth. Um, And that's just so rare for a survivor to come forward and say they've they're experiencing abuse um, and to not be telling the truth and so it's really important that as those that are responding to survivors that we start by believing that we validate that their experience um, and we help them get connected to resources as soon as possible so please go so i want to follow up here um tell me a bit about these early behaviors you you say there there's a there's a build up i guess right yeah, well, Before you have violence or whatever, tell me about some of the early things that might happen. Yeah, so whenever we're looking at abusive behaviors, we're looking at some element of power and control. Um, and so as you can imagine, it's going to be 
a broad range of diverse behaviors, and it's going to be dependent upon the individual, right? Um, as Jeremy mentioned, emotional abuse is a huge one, right? Verbal manipulation, um, uh, talking down to someone, that that type, of, those types of behaviors. We also see things like. Um, asking to control access to someone's social media or be, by, or we see people tracking people's location um, using their, like phone or even like a, a car GPS system. Um, any type of behavior truly that is trying to have power and control over another individual should be a raise of concern for us. Uh, so uh, someone in that situation, what early on, um, I guess it, easier maybe to act early on. I don't know. What, what should they do? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely, this the risk of safety of being safe increases as time goes on. So if you are recognizing things in the early stages, first of all, um, know that they're valid. I see survivors over and over again talk themselves out of behaviors that are happening of, oh, I'm just overreacting. This isn't a big deal, um, especially saying like, well, it's definitely not bad enough to reach out to a resource, right, and to talk to somebody. Like, I'm just, I'm crazy um, for thinking this is something that it, it really isn't. I hear that over and over again. Um, and so it's really important to know that if you are questioning any behavior, it's valid. Um, and you are more than welcome to reach out to, you know, the Savvy Office, CAPSA, any of your local resources, um, and just talk through it. And we can help validate and navigate what you're experiencing and feeling. Mm-hmm. Mr. Hewitt, anything you'd like to add on this? What, what a person should do? And then I'd like to expand that to, you know, maybe you're a friend of someone you'd, and you notice things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just agree with Felicia that um, we need to have a mindset and model for the community and for for everyone to start by believing it takes a lot of bravery to any for anyone to reach out and ask for services and then as a community i think it's really important that we become aware of what resources are available and where to send people for information so that a survivor can get directed into um, services right away Um, the sooner somebody can get connected to services the sooner they can be Um, provided safety and autonomy in their situation. I know it's really important for individuals to have the opportunity of choice. And so um, connecting with a community-based agency or with um, Savvy allows them to get information to know what their next steps are and what their rights are. Jeremy Torgerson, anything you'd like to add on this? You you mentioned maybe about friends or family members that might recognize something. I, I think... One of the big pieces of it, when you talk about the cycle of how it builds up, a lot of of times I kind of see it as the abuser will break down the survivor, so break down their self-esteem. Then they'll isolate them from their support system, and then that's when they can control them. And I think that as a friend or a family member, an important thing to recognize is, is and to do is to not give up on your friend. A lot of times they'll be doing things or saying things that or or that aren't necessarily fully their decision, but their abusers in a way manipulating them or controlling them to be to react to you or to respond to you in a certain way that feels a little bit aggressive, mean, or like they're trying to push you away. And it's oftentimes in those moments that they need you the most. 
Well, uh, let's take a break. We'll come back. Much more to talk about, obviously, an important topic. Uh, there's a Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. It's coming up uh, Monday and Tuesday of next week on the Utah State University campus. This is being put on by Utah State University and by uh, CAPSA. And uh, we have with us uh, Felicia Gallegos, who is with uh, USU Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Officer Savvy. And uh, then two folks from CAPSA, Misty Hewitt and Jeremy Torgerson. And uh, the way you get to the conference, and you're welcome to, to come and attend um, on Monday and Tuesday, is, uh, let me pull this up again, usu.edu slash DVSA conference. Is that correct? usu.edu slash DVSA conference. We'll have more following this. This is Science by the Slice. In 1960, as the Cold War heated up, the U.S. Army launched Project Iceworm. The top-secret effort was aimed at building a network of mobile nuclear launch sites under the Greenland Ice Sheet. Hampered by blizzards and unstable ice conditions, the project, located at Camp Century, was canceled in 1966. A 1.3-kilometer-long ice core was extracted from the site and, until recently, was largely forgotten. USU geoscientist Tammy Rittenauer is among experts tapped to analyze the unusual sample, which is providing clues about the Earth's warming climate. Rittenauer says data from the sample reveals the Greenland ice sheet may be more sensitive to climate change than previously thought. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're previewing the Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. That's Monday and Tuesday on the USU campus at the Eccles Conference Center. And you're welcome to attend. Here's where you get information. usu.edu slash dvsaconference. usu.edu slash dvsaconference. And we have... Uh, three folks uh, with us who are involved in organizing the conference, participating in it. Felicia Gallegos, who's Outreach and Prevention Officer with USU Sexual Assault and Anti-Violence Information Office, or SAVI. Misty Hewitt is Chief Program Officer and Jeremy Torgerson, Residential Services Director, both with CAPSA. And uh, you're welcome to uh, get us your uh, comment or question by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so, Misty Hewitt, I want to ask maybe a, a, a community question. Are there things that uh, that we're doing that that are making a difference? You know, there there are ad campaigns. You know, um, uh, start by believing that those sorts of things. Uh, it, it, or we see the seeing the needle moving on some of these issues. Well, we are see, seeing the needle move. Um, awareness has definitely increased, I think, both at CAPSA and at SAVI. Um, we do know that awareness is an essential tool for individuals to know where to reach out for help and um, to ensure that all demographics know what's available to them and where. Um, I think the challenge, as I mentioned before, that uh, domestic violence and sexual assault is an underreported crime. And um, the challenge associated with, with that is the need for confidential services. Um, to come out and ask for help and information can be challenging. And so 
um, knowing that you can reach out, whether it's through a hotline or coming into an office to receive confidential and safe services is um, a valuable tool, as well as our community just becoming aware and understanding the dynamics of sexual assault and domestic violence. Because it's so complex, it really takes a whole community. It takes um, engaged partnership to be able to increase awareness, to be able to give accurate information to those in the community who are seeking services, and to be a part of dispelling myths related to, um, to these forms of abuse. I wonder if you could uh, maybe give some hope. Somebody's listening. Maybe they're experiencing domestic violence or have experienced sexual assault. Um, that uh, you know, I assume with services, you could go to CAPS or go to Savvy um, with you know therapy or services that, that things can get better. Absolutely. Um, just as a reminder, our hotline at CAPSA is 435-753-2500. And that number is available at any time throughout the day or night. And we have a trained advocate who can direct you to services. Um, CAPSA does provide extensive services. CAPSA started as a um, you know, a one-home shelter, and now it's a thriving organization of over 65 employees. We have a 34-bed shelter, and in addition to our shelter services, which a lot of people um, might just equate services at CAPSA as a shelter, um, I think it's really important to know that we have a lot of community members that don't need shelter services, but really do, do need domestic violence and sexual assault support. And so um, in addition to our shelter services, we offer comprehensive social services that include casework. Um, so caseworkers work individually with um, survivors that are coming in with information on an individualized action plan. We have clinical therapy by experts in the field. And as Jeremy mentioned, we have a transitional housing program, which includes 21 homes that are owned and operated by CAPSA. So, you know, just to kind of get a scope, each year CAPSA supports over 1,600 men and women and children to find safety and start new lives. So if you're out there wondering if um, you're the only one experiencing this, you're not. You're not alone. And we believe you and we want to help you take your next step. I want to turn to Jeremy Torgerson. Uh, you're giving a presentation. I'll just read the title here and have you talk about this. It seems especially important. Reading the Room, Understanding Dissociation's Role While Interacting with Survivors. Uh, define that for me, dissociation. Yeah, so dissociation, there's there's several different um, definitions that that different people give. I like to, to think of it as a disconnection between a person's thoughts, memories, feelings, actions, or sense of who he or she is. It's like, if I were to give it a metaphor for it, it's like the circuit breaker in a, in a person's house. And I mean, you can turn off different parts of that circuit breaker, or you can turn off the whole system. But it's basically like turning off, turning off one part of that circuit breaker may turn off the feelings that person is having. All of a sudden, they're feeling numb. Or it may turn off... Um, certain thought processes that like they're they're planning all of a sudden uh, ability is just not able to to function like it normally would so i mean dissociation there's there's a lot more to it but the basics of it is a disconnection and so that can be a problem when um uh, one way this manifests itself i can imagine is um a judgment on 
hey, he or she should be feeling this or should be manifesting totally. this. We're expecting that, and they're not. And uh, so I guess then uh, problems come that way. Yeah, it happens in the court system all the time. I mean, a, a survivor's up on the stand testifying, and um, maybe they're not showing what people would s- say they should be feeling. They're not up there bawling or crying or things like that. And then all of a sudden, um, everybody is starting to question, well, were they really abused? Uh, also, I guess this would affect uh, the, the, the survivors, you know, as you, as you mentioned, planning, um, you know, dealing with this. If you're dissociated and that's your coping mechanism, then uh, that's going to cause some problems for, for the person. Oh, yeah, definitely. Some, some extensive problems. It makes it really difficult to be able to figure your way out of the situation when part of your brain is just literally shut off. Mm. So what would you say to folks then uh, interacting with uh, with survivors? Uh, I guess the, the key is recognizing that this could be happening, I guess. Yeah, uh, a lot of it is recognition. And I, I think a lot of it as well, what I'm hoping to get out of this presentation or is to help normalize the experience of dissociation as well. I, I There's been a movement in, in the psychology community, and I, not super recent, I'd say in the last decade or two, of, of recognizing that people can have certain symptoms and not qualify for a full diagnosis. Uh, I think of like depression, for example. All, a lot of us know of people that have some sadness in their lives or are more drawn towards that, that sad energy and yet they may not qualify for a full diagnosis of major depressive disorder. I think something that's a little bit different with dissociation is a lot of times in the community we view it as an all or nothing or a black or white thing. If a person dissociates, we automatically think that person has dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. We think back to some of the media coverages of that, like um, the movie Split or uh, the story of Sybil. The, re- the reality is dissociation has, has such a wide spectrum, and it is a very powerful mechanism that the body uses that can a lot of times be very beneficial to help a person survive in situations. And that's something that I'm really trying to help uh, spread awareness about in my presentation as well. By the way, the presentation uh, is happening during this conference. We're talking about the uh, Northern Utah Conference um, on domestic violence and sexual assault. It's happening Monday and Tuesday on the USU campus, uh, put on by USU and by CAPSA, uh, presented by the President's Office at USU and by CAPSA. And um, you can uh, find out more information about this conference at usu.edu slash DVSA conference, usu.edu slash DVSA conference. Uh, so, Misty or, or Felicia, any, any comments you'd like to make on dissociation? I think it's just, you know, I'm so excited that Jeremy's going to be able to have a conversation with so many important leaders in our community about dissociation because it often happens with individuals who are experiencing abuse. It's not like here or there that that happens. It's something that we commonly see, and it's something that we need to be able to validate and um, take seriously. For example, you know, I, I there have been many times where I've gone with a survivor to report to law enforcement and they're laughing as they give their interview, right? But that's just, and you might look at that and say, this person is laughing as they're telling this traumatic story that doesn't make sense to me. But when you start to understand disassociation and how it's a protective me- a protective me- mechanism, um, then you can say, oh, that's what's happening here. Um, and 
and and it helps us to continue to believe survivors you know there's just so many things in our society that help us to that cause us to doubt survivors and we just want people to walk away from this conference realizing we should believe them more than we shouldn't Mm. felicia gagos i'd I'd like to have you talk a bit about a, a presentation that you're giving recognizing and correcting victim blaming behavior. We've heard a lot about this. There's been a lot, uh, I think a lot of attempts yeah. to, to correct this. Uh, I don't know if we're making progress, but maybe tell me about this. Yeah. So I am super excited. This is my, not only my job, but my personal passion is talking about victim blaming. Um, because, you know, I myself, before I started doing this work, thought of myself as somebody who would never doubt somebody who came forward and experienced abuse, right? I would, I was like, I would believe anybody who ever came forward. But and then I found myself actually doubting some experiences that I heard. And I said, what, what is that? Why am I doing that? And I came to realize that there's just so many reasons that I'll go through in this presentation why we tend to doubt someone when they come forward, right? And well-intentioned individuals who are trying to support survivors who are even in this work, in this movement, we can find ourselves blaming survivors accidentally um, just by the system that we've been raised in right a lot of times when we blame a survivor we um, are doing it as a defense mechanism of ourself right like they did something wrong to be abused and so I need to know what they did wrong so that I never do that right that's that's one of the reasons we blame victims when in reality survivors are abused and they did nothing to deserve that abuse right um, or or to ask for that to happen to them. There's also, you know, just the way, again, media paints violence, the way media paints what a survivor should look like, what a perpetrator should look like. It causes us to naturally doubt experiences that we hear because it is very rare that an experience we hear will fit into a box that we that media has painted for us, right? For example, if you have a male friend who comes forward and says, I was sexually assaulted by my girlfriend, you may doubt that because you're like, how, right? If you don't understand the full range of experiences that can happen within abuse um, and that survivors and perpetrators can look like a number of a number of things and so I'm really excited to have this conversation and just it starts with taking personal accountability and that's the focus of this conversation is you know how do we all take a step back from being defensive and saying you know I'm not a bad person to realize that many of us can cause harm even if not on purpose and we all it's all of our responsibility to take a step back and say what can I do better to ensure I'm not perpetuating this victim blaming culture. Mr. Jeremy, anything you'd like to say on this, on, on victim blaming? Well, I would just say that um, talking about violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, is it's just uncomfortable. It's not um, easy for a lot of people, um, given the culture that you grew up in, or family dynamics, or even just your own um, sexual experiences or family dynamics, it, it can be very difficult to just talk about. And I think, I think as a society, we're just more comfortable minimizing things and avoiding conversations. And so as Felicia said, it takes courage to be able to have these um, conversations about a really important topic, a topic that can be lethal, um, a topic that impacts generations. And um, by, by having these conversations and being aware of potential pitfalls in the way that you're communicating with individuals about these topics, 
um, might really make a difference not only for one person but for an entire family or for generations. Adding on a little a little bit to that as well, I I really liked what uh, uh, Felicia was talking about in uh, how media portrays and can make it difficult to be able to really recognize who is a survivor of abuse or not. Abusers do get really good at identifying vulnerable targets. And so they find people that already have some mental health concerns or that are lacking in social supports or things like that. And they target those people specifically a lot of times because they, and they'll even tell this to the survivor that no one will believe you. They're going to think that you're just crazy and the stories that you're coming up with are are completely out there. And I'll hear it a lot of times that um, even sometimes from advocates thinking, you know, there's no way that this story can be true. And then uh, um, a little ways down the road, we're providing them services and we recognize, you know what, this really is true. And that's the honest thing about it is that a lot of times the abuse that we, we don't like to recognize how bad the abuse can really get for a person. And a lot more often than not, it is true, even when it seems completely out of reality. Hmm. I'm wondering, just parenthetically, do you, do you ever have abusers who, uh, you know, at a certain point recognize, hey, I, <laughs> you know, I, I can't keep doing this and, and come forward for, for help? Well, that's a tricky question. You know, CAPSA, um, our services are um, designed to assist survivors. And we want to create a safe environment for that. Um, You know, one thing that we do is we partner with the sheriff's office in providing healthy relationships groups in in the jail. And so I know that that's an area that sometimes we're able to work with uh, offenders because we don't we don't provide offender services at CAPSA directly, but we do want to be a part of the solution at large. And so sometimes there will be people who will come forward and recognize that they themselves have been victims, even though they might be involved in a domestic violence situation as an offender. And so we we do want to make sure that those individuals are getting linked to appropriate services to be able to know how to navigate um, offender accountability in addition to receiving trauma-informed services for them as well. Um, We do have some great community partners that um, will actually be a part of our conference on Monday and Tuesday. We have Derek Tolfson here from um, the university who's going to be talking about offender accountability and some of the work that he does um, even in the legislature and those kinds of things. And so um, there's definitely an element in our conference related to offender accountability and making sure that anyone who's experienced abuse gets services that are appropriate for them and meet um, their needs individually. You know, can I come in on that, yeah. Tom? Mm-hmm. I actually really appreciate you asking that question because um, part of how we perceive perpetrators is part of the reason we blame victims, right? When someone comes forward and their perpetrator is, quote unquote, a good guy, we tend to doubt it, right? When they're, we have this idea of those who cause harm being monsters, heartless, um, evil people. And that's actually rarely what happens. Um, perpetrators are all, all types of different people. Um, and, you know, working on the university campus, we have an administrative process where individuals can report their experience with the Office of Equity, um, the Title Nine coordinator. And through that, we're able to do a lot of education with respondents, which is who, what 
they call perpetrators in that process. Um, and through that, part of what I've seen, um, and having done this work on campus for six going on seven years now, it is very likely and common for someone to experience harm and the individual who caused that harm to have no idea that they caused harm, right? I have had conversations with respondents or perpetrators who are in tears saying like, I didn't know that what I did wasn't consensual or that it wasn't okay. Um, and so I think it's really important, you know, that as we're approaching respondents and as we're approaching ending violence in general, that we recognize the humanity in all of it and that we recognize that the com the com this <clears throat> the situation is just so much more complex. And that's why these conversations are so important um, because it's not a bad guy, good guy type situation. The reality is we can all cause harm and we can all experience harm. And we have to take that, a personal, account that personal accountability and try to change our community one step at a time. Let's take a break. We'll come back with a uh, brief uh, final segment here with our guests. We are talking about the Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. That's taking place Monday and Tuesday of next week on the Utah State University campus. And you can find out more information. You're welcome to come to that conference. USU.edu slash DVSA conference. USU.edu slash DVSA conference is where to go. We'll have more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and the Lyric Repertory Company, presenting Free Man in Paris, a one-man show telling the story of black jazz musicians and their search for freedom in America. The audience can interact with the creator during post-show talkbacks. Performances through July 28th. Details at lyricrep.org. Support also comes from Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, presenting The Magic Flute by Mozart. Nothing is as it seems in this magical, mystical, and vocally demanding opera. Tickets available at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're previewing the Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, talking about these important issues. And that conference is taking place Monday and Tuesday of next week on the USU campus. Uh, the Presence Office at USU and CAPSA are presenting this. Uh, you can find out more information. You're welcome to come to the conference. USU.edu slash DVSA conference is the place to go. USU.edu slash DVSA conference. And we have with us Felicia Gallegos with USU Savvy Office and Misty Hewitt and Jeremy Torgerson from CAPSA. Uh, so, uh, very brief, about five minutes in this last uh, segment. I do want to fit in, Mr. Hewitt. Uh, you mentioned trauma-informed services. Uh, give me a little bit more on that, trauma-informed services. Right. So, um, at Capson, I know at Savvy as well, we really prioritize providing trauma-informed services. As we've talked about, um, when somebody experiences trauma, their um, response, their needs, their interactions are going to be um, it, it's really essential to look through a lens of trauma to understand somebody's behavior. Um, we talked about why somebody might respond in a way that seems atypical or might be um, utilizing um, coping strategies like disassociation or, um, you know, checking out or maybe, maybe even aggravated. Um, sometimes people experiencing trauma look differently than you'd like to think they would look. So if you imagine somebody who's experienced harm 
Um, it's more comfortable to think that that person might just be kind of sad and reaching out for help, but they might be experiencing more of, um, they might be in survival mode and that might not look comfortable to some people. Um, and so having a trauma-informed approach to providing services is um, ensuring that experts um, have the expertise to be able to see and understand the behavioral dynamics that are presented with regard to domestic violence or sexual assault. And um, one thing that we really hope for this conference is that we can continue to have accountability and dialogue across the community, that we can all be aware of the need for trauma-informed services so that survivors experience um, every interaction that they have, every contact that they have with providers or resources is met with compassion and understanding and really an understanding of, of trauma and how that might look in a domestic violence or sexual assault situation. Um, we just have about three minutes left, so I'll give each of you one minute uh, mm-hmm. to, to just, uh, starting with Jeremy, uh, just w- what, what what's the top thing you'd like people to know uh, about this topic? That, as I was saying before, that dissociation is more common of a, of a symptom of a coping mechanism than we recognize a lot of times. And that it can, I mean, most of us have experienced it at one form, in an, form or another, whether that's the daydreaming type of status or just numbing out, trying not to feel. Dissociation is normal for people to experience and that it can be a powerful tool if utilized, if people are learn, learn to utilize it in an effective manner and that we can help people that are experiencing it as well. Felicia Gallegos, um, what, you know, just 30 seconds to a minute, what, what's the top thing that you'd like people to know? Yeah, my takeaway would be that <clears throat> violence is just incredibly common. The likelihood of you knowing somebody who has experienced some form of violence is real um, and it's going to take all of us taking personal accountability for this issue to help stop it and to support survivors ongoingly. Misty Hewitt, what's what's, what's top of mind for you on this topic? Well, you know, my personal goal is collaboration for this conference and I think the more that we work together as a community, the more we're willing to be aware of the complex dynamics and how we need each other as a community to provide trauma-informed Um, services to survivors so that they feel safe and know that their community cares for them and that there is help out there, that they're not alone. Well, we've been talking about the Northern Utah Conference on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. That's coming up uh, Monday and Tuesday at on the USU campus and you're invited you can find out more at usu.edu slash dvsa conference usu.edu slash dvsa conference we've had with us felicia gallegos outreach and prevention officer with usu sexual assault and anti-violence information officer savvy thank you so much thank you for having me uh, also uh, joining us has been misty hewitt chief program officer at capsa thank you thank you so much tom And uh, Jeremy Torgerson has joined us, Residential Services Director with CAPSA. Thank you. Pleasure being here. And thanks, everyone. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today.
Cultures, One Sky, Skywatcher Leo T here. As we look up, we're still checking out the five naked eye planets forming a diagonal line in the dawn this week as tiny Mercury, bright Venus, orange Mars, giant Jupiter, and the jaunty ringed one Saturn do the pool ball dance in the sky and in order of their distance from the sun, no less. And the waning moon visits each one in turn day by day. And the evening sky features the Big Dipper hanging down now, the Little Dipper floating up and Leo walking away. And as NASA gets the momentum to land Earthlings on the moon again, the Artemis moon rocket has been fully fueled for the first time. Fourth attempt at a final pre-launch test started on Saturday and the rocket tanks were filled on Monday. This crucial test known as the wet dress rehearsal simulates every stage of launch without the rocket leaving the launch pad at Kennedy Space Center. The process includes loading all that very cold propellant, going through a full countdown, simulating launch, resetting the countdown clock, and draining the rocket tanks. The results of this wet dress rehearsal will determine when the uncrewed Artemis will launch on a mission that goes beyond the moon and returns to Earth, which will kick the program off and is going to return humans to the moon and land the first woman and first person of color on the lunar surface by 2025. And in Mars rover update news, the InSight rover JPL mission team has chosen to operate its seismometer longer than previously planned. Although the lander will ran out of power faster, uh, the InSight has, uh, by the way, recorded some great big Mars quakes and other seismic work since 2018, and they're thinking it's uh, going to run out of gas by September. And the Perseverance rover and tiny helicopter are still exploring the Jezero crater. Those just landed there up on Mars last year. Curiosity rover, remember that one? It landed in 2012. It's still out there climbing up Mount Sharp right now, a three-mile-high mound in the middle of the Gale crater. And the Curiosity's nuclear-powered, so dust storms don't interfere with its power supply like some of the earlier rovers. Also, the Chinese are on Mars. The Zurong rover landed in a large plane in Mars's northern hemisphere called the Utopia Planitia in May 2021. That's where NASA's Viking 2 lander started the whole thing off by touching down in 1976. In low Earth orbit, the International Space Station has to dodge some debris from Russian anti-satellite testing. A Russian anti-satellite weapons test forced the International Space Station to maneuver around the orbital debris on June 16th. Russia's space agency Roscosmos used an uncrewed Progress 81 cargo ship. Luckily, it was docked at the International Space Station. They fired its thrusters to move the orbiting lab clear of a piece of space debris from the Russian satellite Cosmos. And back on Earth, Kitt Peak telescopes remain standing after Arizona wildfires rage in the mountains. This famous observatory complex still stands at the time of this writing, but the hotspot remains too dangerous for astronomers to verify how much of the area was damaged, but looks like everything's standing so far. It's many cultures, one sky, and let's visit the Celestial Sea, where Cetus the Sea Monster, which is the biggest constellation in the sky, resides in a central character in a sky story that responds to the question, who's the fairest one of all? starts with Ethiopian Queen Cassiopeia's boast that her daughter, Andromeda, just an ordinary mortal, is more beautiful than the divine Nereids, sea nymphs and daughters of the sea god. Her bragging escalates, prompting Poseidon to send Cetus the sea monster to ravage the kingdom's shores and devour the child. Meanwhile, on the terrestrial earth, in real time, crossing the Mediterranean Sea in ancient times was fraught with danger. Reports of extraordinary shipwrecks left coastal dwellers imagining its waters with all manner of hideous creatures, and uh, the best of all is Scylla, who patrolled one side of the dangerous narrow strait between the Italian peninsula and the island of Sicily. Scylla, a beautiful maiden, transformed into a four-eyed, twelve-tentacled, six-headed, shark-toothed beast, and sank ships and devoured crews. Wow. Scylla has come to represent a place that you'd best not find yourself. 
Such stories gave rulers of African kingdoms reason to be terrified, but for some, Cetus the sea monster was just a peaceful whale swimming in the celestial sea below Pisces the fish and Ariandus the river to create a pleasing area of the night sky with Scylla, who could be anything you imagine. How about a happy dolphin with starry eyes and a goofy laugh and a shark-toothed face? Uh, uh, so keep wondering as you look up, look around, and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and in Idaho and streaming live at upr.org. Warm summer evenings have arrived and it's time to head outdoors for parties on the patio. And we've got the perfect soundtrack for your gathering. Jamaican reggae, Congolese sukus, and Caribbean zouk. For dancing or just hanging out. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Summer Party, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org. Jazz is so much more than mere music. It's a unique, vital, powerful art. It's a language, a feeling, a journey. This is music that transcends the fads of the day and the mania of the moment. It is timeless and unequaled. And you can find it every Sunday evening from 6 to 10 p.m. on Jazz Time with Steve Williams here on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on Livewire, comedian and former Saturday Night Live writer Sam Jay about what it's like putting together her own late-night HBO show, plus stand-up comedy from Sean Patton, and music from Philadelphia's former number one forklift driver, Kurt Vile. That's all this week on Livewire from PRX. Saturday evenings at 5 on Utah Public Radio.